and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, the podcast that goes on a hop, skip and jump chronologically through Swedish history. Hello, my name is Chris and the voice you just heard belongs to my co-host Orsa and in just a bit we're going to hop back to 1457 and see what's going to happen to the rule of Sweden now our old friend Karl Knutsson Bunda has been ousted from power. Yes, this is that podcast as hopefully you're now seeing our brand new podcast logo. Yes, thank you Barbara. We had a bit of fun revealing it on Twitter the last few weeks and thank you again for letting Letting us use your lovely artwork. But now, as always, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week. And this week's phrase is Det är där skon klemmer. Which literally translates to English as That is where the shoe pinches. And this phrase was actually suggested to us by Michael from the History of Scandinavia podcast. So thank you very much, Michael. Yes, thank you, Michael. If you're not familiar with the History of Scandinavia podcast, do give it a listen. You find it wherever you find your podcasts. Like us, Michael goes chronologically through history. But unlike us, he does it for the entire region, not just Sweden. Which you would know if you listen to our joint episode when we talked about the Kalmar Union. Precisely. That was special episode 9 that we did with Michael and released between episode 83 and 84 in the timeline. But let's hop back to the Swedish phrase. What does that actually mean? So, det är där skon klemmer, that's where the shoe pinches, refers to a sore spot, something that causes discomfort to someone but not so much physically as metaphorically. So you could say, for example, nobody wanted to mention the budget. We all know that's where the shoe pinches, det där skon klemmer, when it comes to trying to get this project endorsed. So quite like how we'd say in English, you might say that's a sore spot or something similar to that, which uh, when you're talking about it metaphorically. And you do get a sore spot when a shoe pinches you. So they sort of <laughs> link together a bit. Exactly. Now, those of you who follow us on social media might have seen that we've had the pleasure of visiting quite a few historical sites recently, both here in the Stockholm area and down in southern Sweden. Indeed, and we've had a few visitors recently, and that's prompted us to go out and explore even more than we normally do. First, we were down in Skorna, where, as you all know by now, that's where Orsa's from, and we went to see a whole bunch of stuff, so we'll briefly sort of rattle through some of the cool things we did. Yeah, we went back to uh, probably two of our favourite spots in at least kind of... uh, Skåne historical sites. We went back to Ålestenar, the stone ship ring, stone ring shaped like a ship. Yeah, exactly, a stone ship. Some of you might be more familiar with Stonehenge in England, which is huge. Ålestenar is a bit like that, but smaller. Yeah, well, we talked about it in one of the early episodes, so I'm sure they know what Alastair was. Yeah, and we've also talked about Glimingahus before, uh, the medieval castle that stands uh, between Ystad and Simuishamn on the Swedish southeast coast. Which was originally Danish when it was first built, and uh, we went on a really cool guided tour there, and it reminded us of a lot of the stuff that we did uh, when we wrote an article about it for the mainly museums website. So we talked about that and posted about that on social media too. But then we went somewhere new for you also. Yeah, well, I had been there before, but not as much. We went to Karlskrona, 
which is a beautiful town in the Swedish county of Blekinge. It was originally built to be the naval hub for Sweden during our great power era. So it's quite a lot of like grandiose buildings uh, in what is actually a relatively small town. So. Yeah, it was founded by Carl XI, uh, someone we will get to at some point in the timeline. And we, uh, on the way up from Skorna, we went past this old historical road that he supposedly travelled down, which was very cool. And um, yeah, we walked around the town. They had a really fun underground railway that went under the town square that was originally used to take ammunition to the fort and was then used as a bomb shelter during the Cold War and lots of statues of Carl around in the city and yeah it was really fun then we came back up to stockholm and went to a place that we talked quite a lot about when we talked about the vikings we actually went to birka or rather what's left of it in the inner stockholm archipelago and had probably the best guided tour I've ever had. The guy was so enthusiastic and so knowledgeable about what we were talking about, but also was really good at saying, we have no idea what this bit of the island was or stuff like that. So he was really great. Yeah, shout out if uh, you're listening. The guide at Birka, really, really good guided tour. Strongly recommend a visit to Birka. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something we might be able to do in a special episode going forward is looking back at some of these places that um, now we're actually here in Stockholm and we can talk about and learn about even a little bit more. Um, it's just a top top of mind thought there, but you never know. It was really interesting to go to Birka. And then we went to the Armory Museum here in Stockholm. Yeah, and what did we see there? We saw a stuffed horse. Not just a stuffed horse. We saw Streif. Gustav Gustavus Adolphus's horse. Yeah, we were there at the same time as some sort of high school field trip, and uh, we were sort of following them around, listening in, sneak listening in to the guide who was giving them a talk. And uh, yeah, we saw Strafe, we saw loads of other sort of costumes and armor and relics from all throughout Swedish royal history, because the uh, museum is directly underneath the royal palace, so it's got access to a lot of these really cool things. Yeah, and Strife, of course, featured in our special episode number eight about uh, pets and animals in Swedish history. And then, last but not least, we saw a piece of, uh, I suppose living history or he's not a piece he's a he's a real person but the event was a piece of history correct we saw the king and queen yeah but not just seeing them walking around no they weren't like doing shopping in our local supermarket king carl gustav the 16th celebrated 50 years half a century on the throne in september of 2023 and because we're extremely cool people, we went with uh, my parents to see the parade and the boat ride that he was doing throughout town. So we stood on the main bridge right outside the Royal Castle and there was uh, the army and navy and air force did parades up and down with marching bands. And then the king was taken on a horse-drawn carriage throughout the city, waving at his subjects and uh, all that kind of stuff, which was really cool to see. And then we watched as he got on a sloop and was rode back to 
the royal castle from one of the other islands in the Stockholm archipelago. And uh, that was the Vasa Orden, or the Order of Vasa Sloop. So that was really cool to see. Lots of people out and about on the water, sort of trying to follow him. But then there was all the police speedboats and uh, jet skis going around, making sure they couldn't get too close. <laughs> it was cool. I don't think uh, the king refers to us as his subjects. No, I don't. I'm slightly exaggerated. <laughs> he's obviously been on TV a lot more than he's always on TV. TV now because of this anniversary and he likes to refer to uh, the people of Sweden as his fellow Swedes. Standard phrase. I don't British politicians never say that. My fellow British people or anything like that. It goes to show so the king has been on the throne for 50 years since he took over from his grandfather in 1973 and Swedish kings always have like a motto, valspråk, it's called in Swedish. Yeah, they choose a phrase that is going to like summarize their reign. So the the motto or the phrase for the current king is för Sverige i tiden, which doesn't translate very well to English, but it sort of means for Sweden in our time. Or in the moment. Or in the moment, like presently yeah not for the past or for the future but like i'm around now yeah that should be a swedish phrase of the week so let's not talk about it too much we can use that in the next episode sure but it is pretty astonishing i think anyone who's done a job for 50 years should have a parade through the city that's a long time to stick a job out so uh good on the king for doing that do we have to ring up the panelists and ask if we can use his phrase? Or, mate, no, let's ask if he can come on and tell us about it. He's been on one podcast once. Exactly, so that means he can be on a second podcast another time. I think time. it's very unlikely that the second podcast he goes on is going to be a flat pack history of Sweden. Considering the first podcast he went on, I think, is the most listened to podcast in the Swedish language. Yeah, so now he can go to the most listened to podcast on Swedish history in English that doesn't focus on any other Scandinavian countries. Sure. You contact the palace. I will. We'll see what they say. Are we going to have him round to our kitchen then? Where this no, is where we record. No, we'll go to record. him, obviously. We record in the palace. Uh, what was the Swedish phrase, which, which means, like, you know, you don't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket? If you don't ask, you don't know. Yeah, so. exactly. So I'm going to ask. Sure. How about we move on and go back to uh, the king that's going to feature in the episode right now? Well, the multiple kings, which is kind of part of the problem. Let's jump back to someone who didn't really get to stay on the throne quite as long as King Carl Gustav. And that was Karl Knutson Bunda, or KKB, as we love to call him. And he was forced to leave Sweden in late 1456 and go into exile in the Hansa town of Danzig. And he was kicked out by the Archbishop of Uppsala, of all people, because he wasn't just the Archbishop, he was just a, a big leading politician of his age. He definitely was. But now we're back with no one in official power in Sweden, an ongoing conflict with Denmark and a country in turmoil. So basically, it's like any other day in the 1400s, really. 
Yeah, the political unrest does seem to be never ending in this period. And we get an idea of how that affected normal people, or at least a normal-ish person in one of the wealthier parts of society in our last episode, when we looked at the life of Norwegian miner nobleman Olaf Nielsen Skanka. But who knows, maybe we'll move on to more stable times from now on, right? <clears throat> Somehow I doubt that. Anyway, two weeks after KKB left the country... By now, it's early in the year 1457, the Swedish Council met to discuss how to move forward from here. They agree that in the long run, they want to re-establish the Kalmar Union properly, meaning they want Sweden to be ruled by the same king as Denmark and Norway, because that's good for trade and regional stability, but that could take time. So to stabilize the situation in Sweden for now and to fill the power vacuum, they decide to elect two regents, Riksförståndare, from among their own ranks. And if you're listening to this and getting a weird feeling of deja vu or think you've maybe accidentally clicked on an old episode, don't worry, you're fine. This is exactly what happened before previously after the death of King Chris. Two regents. Yes, history is really repeating itself here. It's even repeating itself in the details, insofar as the council choose, like Chris says, two regions, just like they did back then. This time they elect Erik Axelsson Tott, who is from an influential border nobility family. As the name suggests, they are nobility that live along the borders to Denmark and Norway, and they are generally the strongest supporters of the Kalmar Union because of the benefits the union brings to cross-border trade and movement of goods, which they make money from. Within the border nobility, it's also more common to have inter-family relationships, like marriages, with members of the other country's nobility. Yeah, and if Sweden goes to war with Denmark, whose properties are going to be the first ones to get burnt down in a war? It's the border nobility, so they have another reason to want the Kalmar Union to be a thing. Exactly. And alongside Eric Axelsson Tort, the council also elect Jöns Bengtsson Oxenfrana as the second regent. Not only is his not only is he the son of previous regent Bengt Jonsson Oxenfrana and a member of the influential Oxenfrana family, KKB's main rival for domestic power in Sweden, but he's also the archbishop who kicked out KKB. So earthly and divine power really unites in one person here. We've got the same man holding the highest office of the land in both church and state. But not for too long, though, because these two regions will only be in power for a few short months in early 1457. Because, perhaps to no one's surprise, King Christian down in Denmark is naturally keen to get on the Swedish throne too, and put the infighting in the Kalmar Union behind him and rule the Union as one, just like it was intended. After fighting KKB for the crown of Norway, which we covered in episode 87 and a bit last time, he's already king of two-thirds of the Union, so arguably he's the most logical choice to take over in Sweden too. At least he thinks so. 
and he wastes no time making his wishes known. He sends a letter to the Swedish council in which he very strongly puts it that he's the one doing them a favor. But to make his point, he also gathers troops and begins preparations to depart for Sweden. So he's applying both carrot and stick, really, in his bid for the Swedish throne. And in March, he sends a draft of the royal oath he would swear in Sweden to the Swedish council, which they seem to approve of, even though it means they will have to hand back power to the king and the nobility would lose the strong position they'd enjoyed during the reign of King Chris, for example. Some historians argue that it's the strong influence of the border nobility on the Swedish council, who, like we said, want this stability, that tips the scale in King Christian's favour. Or perhaps it was the fact that he's literally approaching Swedish shores with a fleet filled with his troops ready to take it by force. Either way, when Christian arrives in Stockholm in June 1457, he is quickly accepted as the new king. He is formally elected on the 23rd of June, and he is crowned in Uppsala on the 3rd of July. By doing that, the archbishop is literally giving away his power as the regent to the man he's crowning. Yeah, so he is, he's really part of this process. And whilst the royal oath that Christian is going to sign is a blow to the nobility because their powers are reduced a bit, and unlike its predecessor, Christian doesn't promise to not put his own men in local power in Sweden, they do make the king promise that he will be moderate in introducing new taxes, and he'll return all the land he's occupied during the conflict with KKB and make sure that property that KKB took is returned to the former owners. Christian also decides to spend a fair amount of time in Sweden. In early 1458 he goes on his Eriksgata, that traditional tour around the country, and he also gets the councils of the three kingdoms to approve his three-year-old son Hans as heir to the thrones. Hans, by the way, is sometimes known as Yuan in English sources, so just make sure you don't get confused if you come across that name. But who is he actually, King Christian? So far, he's featured in our story mainly as the enemy from Denmark and KKB's rival, but we haven't actually said much about his background. True. He was elected King of Denmark back in 1448, in an election that was hurried along partly because the Danes feared the rise of KKB. And he does have tenuous links to old Danish royal dynasties in that his mother, Hedvig of Holstein, is a distant relative of Eric Klipping, who was King of Denmark in 1259 to 1280, so, you know, 200 years previously. Christian himself is born in Oldenburg in northwest Germany, close to the city of Bremen, on the 28th of September 1426. So he's about our age, 32, come to think of it, when he becomes king of Sweden. His dad, Dietrich, is the Count of Oldenburg. His dad is actually known as Dietrich the Happy, or the Fortuitous, for some reason. We don't know why. Maybe he's just lucky and happy. Yeah, could be. Christian himself is often described as a jovial character, so it could be that his dad was a happy chap. We mentioned previously that when he became King of Denmark, he took over the dead King Chris's wife, Dorothea. And whilst she never had any kids with Chris, she does have five with Christian. Their first two sons die before the age of five, but then they have three children that live into adulthood, the oldest one being Hans, who Christian names as his heir. 
Christian's dad actually died back in 1440, and so that was when he took over his dad's role as Count of Oldenburg. And so when we get to where we are in the timeline in 1458, he's king of the Kalmar Union, which, let's remember, stretches all the way from Iceland to modern-day Russia, and from the North Cape to now Oldenburg in northern Germany. Yes, it is a big territory, and it's about to get even bigger, because in 1459, Count Adolf of Holstein dies with no sons to succeed him. We spent several episodes talking about the conflict between Denmark and, by extension, the Kalmar Union with Holstein over the county of Schleswig back during Margareta and Eric's reigns. But the fact of the matter is that in recent times, the relationship between the former enemies has actually really improved. In the peace agreement that ended the conflict, it was decided that neither Schleswig nor Holstein would ever be ruled by the same ruler as Denmark. But the local nobility has really enjoyed the convenience of Schleswig and Holstein having the same ruler, as has been the case during Count Adolf, and they've enjoyed the good relations he had with Denmark, which was aided by the fact that Christian is his nephew. So now that Adolf is dead with no sons, the local nobility there is actually thinking, you know what? It would be really great in practice if Christian took over, but we can't do that in principle. Now, Christian isn't going to say no to becoming ruler of Schleswig and Holstein, a territory that not just holds value and a lot of symbolism in the eyes of Denmark, but one that would make him the ruler of the largest united territory so far in Nordic history. So what happens is that the nobility in Schleswig-Holstein perform a constitutional somersault of extraordinary measures. They elect Christian as a private person as Count of Schleswig and Duke of Holstein, on the promise that Schleswig and Holstein wouldn't be separated and always ruled by the same person. They sort of ignore the fact that Christian is king of Denmark, and give it to him irrespective of that title. So they basically write two columns on a piece of paper, with king of Denmark in one column, and ruler of Schleswig and Holstein in the other column, and write Christian's name in both, but they're in two separate columns, it's not the same position, so they've technically abided by the terms of the old peace treaty, it's just that the two positions happen to be filled by the same person. It's mad that they actually thought that this would actually be legitimate. Yeah, I mean, most historians I've read who talked about this, they describe it as Christian becoming a vassal to himself, which is quite an odd thing to imagine. Either way, they managed it. The nobility in both Schleswig and Holstein are happy. Christian is happy. Everyone's happy, but not for long. Yeah, Christian's happy for about three seconds because nothing comes for free, and especially not dukedoms and counties in northern Germany. Because in order to get to become the ruler of Schleswig and Holstein, Christian had to pay off the other candidates and pay them off a lot. He had to pay 40,000 Rhenish guilders to his own brothers, who were also possible contenders to the position, as they were obviously nephews of Adolf too. And then he had to pay 43,000 guilders to the Dukes of Hindenburg. <laughs> now, it's always very difficult to sort of conceptualise what these old sums of money mean. But historian Lars Erik Larsson has calculated that the sum Christian had to pay is the equivalent of 
82,000 oxen. That's 82,000 more oxen than I have. It would be hard for me to pay that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much that helps us. But perhaps more importantly, it is more than the entire annual tax revenue from all of the Kalmar Union. So in effect, Christian has to pay up more than his entire kingdom is able to make in a year. And that's before he's had to pay for all the other expenses that a kingdom naturally has. Yeah, so this is a big chunk of money. And what does Christian think to do about paying this bill? Well, he raises taxes, which um, doesn't sound like too great an idea because we know who doesn't like taxes. Well, basically everyone in Sweden at this point in time especially the nobility and the peasantry. I mean, does he not remember how the whole situation got to how it is today at this point? You know, taxes have always been a problem. The Swedes especially don't like taxes being raised for something that concerns Schleswig and Holstein. That is a real spectre of the past for them, having been the cause of political turmoil that eventually led to the Engelbrecht Rebellion back in the 1430s under King Erik. And just like back then, the Swedes simply don't care much about Schleswig and Holstein. It's of great importance to Denmark, but it's far away from Sweden, who would much rather have the Kalmar Union concentrate more on territory in the east, which is more in Sweden's sphere of interest. Yeah, it's all relative, isn't it? And unlike during the reign of King Chris, Sweden no longer has a separate state budget from the rest of the Kalmar Union. So that meant that taxes collected in Sweden could leave the country and go straight to paying for Christian's takeover of Schleswig and Holstein. New taxes are introduced. Christian orders his bailiffs to be more forceful and diligent in collecting the existing taxes too. And he even goes as far as going round Sweden rounding up all sorts of treasures and selling them for cash. And this included going to Vardstena Abbey where KKB had hid money for safekeeping when he had to leave the country. And he made the Abbey hand over that too. Now, as this forceful tax collection continues for the first few years of the 1460s, tensions in Sweden continue to rise, and in the winter of 1463, it reaches boiling point, despite it being probably cold outside. At the winter market in Uppsala, a rumour begins to spread that KKB is returning, ready to take on Christian and free Sweden from the tax burden of paying for Schleswig and Holstein. This is greeted with enthusiasm, which causes the archbishop, our former regent, Jöns Bengtsson Oxenstierna, to panic. Sure, he's no big fan of King Christian, but he sure doesn't want KKB back. He did literally throw him out of the country, after all. So he starts sending out orders that people expressing rebellious views should be captured and even tortured, and he asks the king to send troops in support. Yeah, so he's really trying to nip this in the bud, and Christian hears this and agrees and comes to Sweden personally. He meets with the Count Win Vardstener, and perhaps fearing there's some truth to this rumour of KKB's return, he ends the cosy relationship he's so far had with KKB's old allies and friends, and so he takes their positions and properties from them and gives them to members of the Oxenfurner family, because when he first became king, he thought that, well, okay, KKB does have a 
bit of support. I need to keep his allies happy and can't just go around executing everybody at the start. And he let them keep their property and now he's taking this away from them. He even gives the Archbishop the command of Stockholm Castle, perhaps hoping that by inflating his powers and giving him even more stuff to do, the Archbishop can act on his own behalf against rebellious Swedes, leaving Christian to head back home to Denmark. But just before he leaves, for good measure, the king increases taxes in Sweden some more to pay for these increased defences and these troops. On the way home, Christian actually heads over to Finland to check on his territory there, as that was an old KKB stronghold too, after all, so he needs to make sure that that isn't going to rebel either. No sooner has the king's ship set sail eastward than all hell breaks loose in Sweden. News of these new increased taxes is the straw that breaks the camel's back, and some three to four thousand angry peasants, mainly from Uppland, march on Stockholm. Here, the archbishop and the council meet and try to reason with them, but with an uncharacteristic action, considering the strong religious morals of life in Sweden at the time, the peasants openly oppose the archbishop. So the archbishop goes on the defensive and says, ah, well, actually, how about we revoke the tax you dislike the most, the ship tax, Hwepsjelden, Will you please calm down then? And getting rid of this tax they hated the most was actually good enough for the peasants. And so the archbishop perhaps breathes a sigh of relief as these peasants lay down their arms and go home. But that sigh would have been premature, because when Christian, who's by now reached Orbu on the other side of the Baltic Sea, hears that the archbishop has lowered taxes on his own accord without asking him, and he's furious. He thinks the archbishop has double-crossed him, first by making him come to Sweden, saying that KKB might come back, and then increasing taxes just to anger the peasants so he could come in and be the hero of the day and cut the taxes to raise his own political profile in the country and rally the peasantry around him. And so Christian does the only thing he can do and turns his ship around, on the 10th of August, he's back in Stockholm and he has his troops surround the city, arrest the archbishop and uh, take control of his fancy bishop residency too. This enrages the peasants, who not only like the archbishop politically, but they're afraid Christian will just reinstate the tax again. They rise up once again, but their revolt is brutally quashed when at the end of August, Ture Tureson Bjelke, a member of the border nobility, leads an attack on the peasants on behalf of the king and massacres them in Stockholm. Official sources from the Times state that 60 died, but historians estimate that it was likely more like a thousand people dying. So Ture Tureson Bjelke gets the nickname Slaughterer of Peasants. Yeah, and so this brutal repression and slaughter halts the revolt for the time being, which isn't perhaps surprising, but it doesn't make the dissatisfaction with the king go away, especially not now that Sweden's archbishop is imprisoned down in Copenhagen. And from his jail cell, the archbishop tries to proclaim an interdict on King Christian. This is a religious ban that would stop people or groups from participating in particular religious rites. So the archbishop is basically trying to get the king excluded from 
from attending church in Sweden, which, considering the religious nature of life here at the time, would have been of big symbolic value and political value too. But the king can't afford for this to happen, so he quickly writes to the Pope, saying that he's not imprisoned the Archbishop, he's actually imprisoned the commander of Stockholm Castle, who just happens to be this religious nobleman. The, yeah, they just happen to be the same person. So basically he's playing the same card as the Schleswig-Holstein nobleman used, just two separate positions, they just happen to be the same person. I didn't imprison the Archbishop, I imprisoned the commander of Stockholm Castle, but they're the same people, yeah, but I didn't imprison the Archbishop. It's very strange logic. Exactly, it's like, I'm imprisoning your father's brother. It's like, yeah, but you imprisoned my uncle. No, I'm imprisoning your father's brother. Like, yeah, good for them, I guess. And amazingly, the Pope seems to agree with this logic, as he sides with Christian and overrules the interdict the Archbishop has put on the king. Christian has handily pointed out that this isn't actually the first time that Jonsbanks and Oxenkrona has rebelled against a king. So when will it end? When will he get these ideas out of his head? And the fact that the first time he did it was against KKB, which was actually what helped Christian get into power in the first place, is, you know, all by the by. Yeah, you have to cherry pick what you want to mention when you talk to the Pope. Anyhow, Christian heads back to Denmark in November in a ship that's loaded with this year's tax revenue from Sweden. If he thought taking away all the kingdom's money would somehow help the problem go away, well, it doesn't. Instead, the rebellion gathers pace as noblemen now start joining the rebellion. It shows you how important that Christian taking over Schleswig and Holstein was, that he knows that taking all this money and raising taxes isn't going to cause a lot of problems in Sweden, but he just has to do it. His hands are tied. As the calendar ticks over to 1464, the monks writing in the Valsteina Abbey diary mention this, and uh, this is Orsa's own translation of the old Swedish text, so uh, let's see what it has to say. In the year of our Lord 1464, soon after the eighth day of Epiphany, the Bishop Master Schettel of Linköping went, with his brothers and other friends of the Catchup Archbishop, to join with as many of the kingdom's noblemen and knights as they could, and armed themselves to avenge the Archbishop and make war against King Christian. And they began to lay siege to almost all the castles of the country, and capture and plunder those noblemen and knights who supported the king. Excellent reading there. That's my Abbey diary voice. And then Brother Jonas ate too much gruel for breakfast and he was punished for his indulgency. Maybe that last bit wasn't actually in And a the roof tile fell from the Abbey and smashed in the courtyard and all the brothers were in shock. <laughs> Stop making up stuff that's not in the Vardstainer diary. How do you know that's not in the Vardstainer diary? Have you checked? Have you read it all? So as the text said, and by text I mean the actual text, not the stuff that Chris made up, the group of rebels have found a leader in the Bishop of Linköping, Kjetil Karlsson Vasa, who also happens to be the cousin of the imprisoned archbishop. The religious figures in 15th century Sweden really are fighters, aren't they? It's just like back in Jarl's day. This force attacks several estates that are held by people loyal to Christian, like the diary mentions, and they march on Stockholm. 
They're in a hurry because for them the cold winter weather is great since it means that they can transport themselves and their weapons and their supplies on skis and sledges. And they can do this across lakes, swamps and terrain that's usually difficult to penetrate but that's now frozen over. At the same time, the cold weather prevents their enemy, King Christian, to get there from Denmark since the Baltic Sea is frozen and his ships can't sail. So it's a double whammy, really. Yeah, it's really clever tactics. However, when Christian hears of this rebellion up in Sweden, he decides he's not going to wait for the better sailing weather and instead attack right away over land. In March, he crosses the border into Sweden with an army of 2,000 men. As they march across the southern border, more people, and often noblemen who belong to the border nobility, join the army of the king. They're probably also afraid that if they don't help him and he does win, he'll just turn around and extract revenge on them, just as those who fought against him. On the 18th of March, they reach Linköping and stay for three days in Bishop Schettil's residence, which we actually visited a few months ago. They loot the place before continuing on to Stockholm, where the rebels have gathered. But when they get there a week later, the rebels that were gathered there, they've fled in a rush. They're not really ready to face the king in an open fight yet, so they legged it, leaving a lot of their supplies behind, which the king's men can now take. The rebels have regrouped in Vesteros, and once they've done that, they retreat even further into Dalarna to avoid this open battle they won't be able to win. Instead, they take up a defensive position in Hellaskogen near Haraka's church in Vesmaland, where they lay in wait for the king and, uh, you know, set up another ambush there. Now, listeners who have better memories than we do might recognize the names Hellaskogen and Haraka's church, and that's because this is the same place that the battle between Puke and KKB took place back in the winter of 1437, where KKB lost a lot of his men and were forced to agree to a negotiation with Puke. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many names, I, I didn't remember that, that that happened there. It goes to show, though, how many rebellions there have been, and that some of these places are quite strategic and worth fighting in, because uh, we'll see what happens next. On the 17th of April, the king and his forces have arrived, and the battle they've both been waiting for begins. Once again, the rebel army starts using guerrilla tactics. They're fighting on familiar terrain, they can put up obstacles and traps that the knights in the king's army get trapped in and so the rebels can then fire at them with the crossbows and longbows basically picking them off from a distance it's said that the king himself got an arrow shot through his hat that's how close the fighting was it all ends in an embarrassing defeat for christian once again, an army of peasants and noblemen, mainly from what we call Uppsvensk noble families, so not from the border region, but from the centre of the country, they defeat the king's professional army thanks to clever thinking and use of ranged weapons. 
Christian, perhaps now hatless, quickly retreats to Stockholm to buy a new hat, but he can only hold on to that for so long. By midsummer, the city and all its hat shops have been surrounded by returning rebel forces, and the king flees to Denmark. There actually is a really good hat shop in Serdamal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's Mal. what I was imagining, <laughs> Christian just <laughs> riding up to that hat shop. Quick, I need a new hat. The hat was very important to people in the 1400s, we imagine. It was. And even though the Battle of Hierarchus Church had been a success, the rebels know that they can't keep up the fight for long. They would prefer a diplomatic solution with the king, uh, mainly just get rid of these stupid taxes, partly because the nobility and the council is also divided too, and partly because they know Christian can just afford to equip another army and return later in the year. This isn't the end of the war just because they've beaten him once. And broadly speaking, this partition in the nobility I mentioned runs between the border nobility that are more in favour of the king and the Upsvensk nobility. These don't have that same tie that the nobility in the border regions have to Denmark, and they don't see why their taxes should go to funding what they see as purely Danish matters like Schleswig and Holstein. I mean, we've mentioned this many, many times now at this point. Swedish taxes should stay in Sweden in their view. However, these two groups of nobility are united in two things. Despite the border nobility supporting the king, they still want the Swedish archbishop released from captivity, and nobody at all wants KKB back. Oh yeah, because KKB is once again trying to force his way into the equation, perhaps trying to capitalise on the general instability. A relative of his is going around Dalarna, where peasants are no stranger to an uprising, and he is agitating and mobilising the locals in favour of KKB and against Christian. The peasants argue, though, that, hang on, last time KKB was here, he really wasn't a friend of us peasants, and all he ever does is self-serving. But KKB's relatives really manage uh, to portray him as the lesser of two evils and get the peasants and a few noblemen on their side. If you want to get rid of Christian, you need someone who can finish the job, and KKB is your man, is their argument. However, the Oxenfrana family also see an opportunity here. Again, they don't like KKB, but they think they can maybe play Christian and KKB against each other to their own advantage, and in particular get their archbishop released. So in the end, the same people who kicked him off the throne a few years previously now agree to have KKB come back. Crucially, they think they can control KKB, or at least use him against Christian and then discard him later. Karl Knutson Bunda has been keeping himself busy down in Danzig, lending money to Prussian towns and getting involved in the ongoing fight between the German order, which is still hanging on, the King of Poland and towns in Prussia. So he's, of course, more than happy to come back and be given the crown of Sweden by some rebels. On the 9th of August, Karl Knutson Bunda lands in Stockholm. <laughs> the rebels quickly and perhaps grudgingly swear loyalty to him and at a council meeting he is proclaimed king for a second time. Woohoo, yeah. I mean, this guy is quite something. He's definitely not the nicest chap ever, but he's, uh, he's a really interesting character. But he's not off to a great start this time around. Because even though Christian had to leave Stockholm without a new hat, forces loyal to Denmark still hold Stockholm Castle. And they've seen KKB come in with his ship and are wondering what's going on. 
Karl Knuts von Bunda actually strikes a deal with them, whereby they give him the castle and return he says that the Danes can keep the Archbishop in captivity, because after all, the KKB doesn't like him at all. He's an Oxenfrana and one of his main rivals who kicked him out last time, so having him in prison in Denmark isn't really a problem for him. This deal, though, of course, angers KKB's rebel forces who want the Archbishop released. One of the main reasons for getting KKB back was that he would help to release the Archbishop. So, angered at this betrayal, they take over the castle themselves and then refuse to give it to KKB. I mean, what a giant mess. At the same time, members of the Uxenfrana family turn to Christian and says... We're sorry for inviting KKB back. We'll help you fight him if you give us back our archbishop. Christian, knowing full well the classic line, my enemy's enemy is my friend, takes this opportunity to get back control of Sweden from KKB. So as a sign of good faith, he does release the archbishop and teams up with the Oxenfranas. I think the best phrase for this period is my enemy's enemy is also my enemy because everybody's just fighting each other. It's just so... it's intense. But now, yeah, it's getting tricky to keep track of who's fighting who here because Christian and the Oxenfronas were just fighting against each other. But now KKB is back um, and not listening to them, so they unite in fighting him after KKB won't unite with them. It's all a bit of a mess. It is. In November, the Archbishop is back in Uppsala, where he immediately also assumes the title of regent, clearly showing his opposition to KKB, because you can't really have a king and a regent at the same time. Now it's clear the entire Oxenfrona family aren't willing to accept KKB as king. Yes, he might have been a useful pawn in the game to hit Christian, and they were the ones to invite him back, but just a few weeks later, he's clearly now not the solution they want, especially when he openly declined to try and release the archbishop. Things are really not looking good for KKB this time. His position is weak. Not only has the Archbishop declared himself regent, most of the nobility either sides with the Uxenfranas or are loyal to the king. KKB really has no one but a few of his own relatives on his side. At the same time, whilst KKB holds the city of Stockholm, his enemies hold the castle, and from the castle they bombard the city with cannons, basically conducting a form of medieval terror bombing of the city to weaken the local support of KKB. In mid-December, KKB tries to leave and launch an attack against the Archbishop's men elsewhere in Sweden, but he's forced to move back to Stockholm. It wasn't successful. In January, so we're now in 1465, KKB realises that the game is up. The Archbishop, in return, has launched an attack with his forces. They've surrounded the city and at the same time, the bombardment from Stockholm Castle continues. KKB tries to sneakily sail out of the city, but he's discovered and fired at and forced back. So on the 30th of January, he agrees to take part in a ceremony in the city hall where he publicly abdicates and resigns his claims to the throne of Sweden. To not make the whole thing too harsh on the man, though, he's given money and land and allowed to go back to Finland, where he's previously resided. 
In fact, he's given such a big reimbursement for his abdication that you could argue that personally he's made a net profit by coming back and just sitting on the throne of Sweden for less than six months. And then paid to leave again. And I don't know about you, but giving him this incentive to leave and all this money and land back in Finland doesn't really seem like too clever a solution to me. But for KKB, it's been a massive roller coaster ride. He's in, he's out, he's in, he's out, he's back in Finland, he's in Germany, he's in Sweden, he's in the castle, he hasn't got a hat. He's, uh, no, he's not the one who didn't have a hat. That oh, was yeah, Christian. Well, well, maybe he doesn't have a hat too. Shows you how, how crazy the story is. I'm losing track of the hats. So maybe he does have a hat, maybe he doesn't. But I've mainly forgotten about how many times he's been in power only to return. He's been involved so many times now. And we might not have seen the last of him or his hat yet. But for now, it is the Uxenfjernas who've come out on top. By twisting King Christian's arm and playing the king and KKB against each other, they've not just gotten the archbishop released, they've also got him back in the position of regent. And they've got the peasants, who've been fed anti-Christian propaganda for over a year, still all riled up against the king. So what will they do now? Will they just play nice and hand over the crown to Christian? Or will they try and keep control of Sweden for themselves? And what will KKB do? Yeah, apart from count all his money. We'll cover that all in the next episode, because 1465 has only just begun, and if all the political turmoil wasn't enough, Sweden's now hit by a serious wave of the plague. So all in all, we're pretty much back where we started. In this episode, we've fought the Danes. KKB has come back and been kicked out. Uh, There's no one in power properly ruling Sweden. But now there's a plague. That sums it up pretty well. And I'm, I'm pretty glad I don't live in Sweden in 1465. But before we go, there's just about time to read out a great review from Colin of Salop on... Apple Podcasts, which is Five Stars Superb Podcast. I recommend this podcast to anyone interested in history and or Sweden. Orsa and Chris produce a very professional podcast, which is both informative and entertaining. I like the chronological narrative, which is broken up occasionally by special episodes and field trips. As a keen genealogist, I took a DNA test that showed I share a paternal line ancestor from around 2600 BCE with the House of Bjelbu. At least I now know who Bjelbu Jarl and his dynasty were and their importance in Swedish history. Additionally, I have a similar relationship with Emanuel Swedenborg, of whom uh, more later, I guess. Jartika om a flat pack history of Sweden, Taximika, Orsa, and Chris. And Taximika, you, Colin. Yeah, what a lovely review. Thank you so much. We were also going to talk about some great conversations we've been having with listener Amy on Facebook, but it has been a long episode, so we'll just save that till next time. Prepare yourselves for tales of emigration to Chicago and the life of Swedish immigrants in Illinois. We will be back with that and more KKB and Christian adventures in two weeks' time. Until then, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on X Twitter or Twitter X at Flatpack Sweden and on Facebook, just search our name. You can also check out our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, or if you want to get in touch, send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. 
Yes, and we're also just starting off on Blue Sky. Um, no idea if we're going to be using that very much. It's mainly sort of an emergency backup for when, uh, rather than if Twitter falls apart completely. Um, but just uh, keep an eye on that. Yes. But until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Hey, doll. This is going to be cut so much. No, it's not. This is excellent content. This is exactly what our listeners want from us. <laughs> they so. don't want your delusions of grandeur inviting the king on the podcast. It's not delusions of grandeur. It's just delusions. <laughs> one of the main reasons for getting KK key... One of the main reasons for getting KK key... KK key... One of the main... <laughs>